Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have bad, crazy, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And it's such a crazy day, Jim, that we not only have two crazies, it's so crazy that none of them is President Trump canceling his meeting with the Danes because they won't sell him Greenland. So that's just the way to preface the day here. I think if we'd selected that one as a topic, we would just sigh over and over <laughs> into the microphone. And that wouldn't make for a particularly interesting show. And or I think the you know what we're talking about in the bad martini is uh, not something that should go unnoticed by our listenership or by anybody, really. No. So let's dive right into it. Uh, bad Martini. Uh, this story comes to us from the New York Times, which is a horrifically biased take on this story. But the facts here are still bad enough. Uh, this is Jim Tankersley and Emily Cochran. The federal budget deficit is growing faster than expected, even as President Trump openly considers more tax cuts and other ideas that would add to government debt. The deficit will reach $960 billion for the 2019 fiscal year, which ends September 30th and $1 trillion for the 2020 fiscal year, the Congressional Budget Office said in an updated forecast released on Wednesday. Previously, they projected an $896 billion deficit for 2019 and $892 billion for 2020. Those numbers would be even higher if not for lower-than-expected interest rates, which are reducing the cost of servicing the national debt. And I believe I saw one estimate, Jim, that uh, by 2029, between now and then, $12 $12 trillion will be added to the national debt. We talk about this uh, from time to time when we see where we are in the fiscal year. After 10 months, we had the, the most debt after 10 months in the history of this country. Uh, it's not like revenues really are the problem. Spending continues to be the problem. Trump throws out nice budget blueprints and then never insists on much and always goes along with whatever Congress gives him. So what do we do about this? I think it's safe to say that no one will really make significant spending cuts. You won't see entitlement reform. You won't see any real action on this issue until it becomes a crisis. And you're, you know, until you actually start having uh, an inability to pay out, whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, or Social Security as the baby boomers continue to retire. Um, people, there are different estimates about when that kicks in. Generally, I, I don't know about you, Greg, I've noticed it always seems to be just after the second term of whatever this president is, you know? <laughs> Um, So most people think sometime in the mid to late 2020s is when it'll really start being an issue. Interest payments on the debt will become a bigger and bigger chunk of the uh, uh, federal spending. And that's that's when you can't put it off. That's when you can't promise to pay it more of it back later. Um, You have to pay the interest payments in order to, you know, not default on them. This is where it'll really become an issue. And it is the most predictable disaster in American history. I remember hearing about this stuff when I was... And growing up in the 1980s, and we said, you know, people were very worried about, you know, I think it might have gone you know, all the way up to a couple billion under uh, under Reagan. Remember that? How bad that was, Greg? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, under Obama, early years, we had trillion dollar a year deficits. The first year that had been uh, the threshold had been crossed. Uh, it was a big factor driving the Tea Party movement. A lot of people say, "Oh my goodness, trillion dollars! We're borrowing a trillion dollars more." And the explanation from both uh, mainstream economists and the Obama administration was like, look, there's a terrible recession where the, the Great Recession, you know, tax revenues are plummeting. We have to pay money for the stimulus. You have to expect us to run a really big deficit. Don't worry, it won't be quite so bad. What well, was it similarly bad in 2010? It did gradually shrink down to about the 500, only 500 billion in the middle to late Obama years before inching back up again. 
it was kind of, it's a fair argument. Romney and Ryan made this argument very explicitly, and they lost. And a, you know, a decent number of conservatives started probably started thinking to themselves, why do we lose each election? Because we keep trying to drag the American people kicking and screaming towards a fiscally responsible position that they do not want to take. If the deficit and the debt and the debt took the form of Godzilla, and you could see it, and you could see it smashing buildings and tearing apart, you know, uh, cities and stuff like that, then people would worry about it. But it's simply numbers on a screen or numbers on a paper. And it doesn't seem all that scary or menacing. Um, comedians used to have all this great joke. It was Dennis Miller, one of my favorites, who used to say, well, who do we owe all this money to? And whoever it is, uh, you know, stiff them. <laughs> you know, some of the money is to foreign debt, this idea that, you know, we owe it to China or something like that. That's some of it. But a lot of you, your U.S. savings bonds, you know, your grandma used to give you, like, you know, you, you get this for a certain amount, you keep it, you go back a couple of years, you look online, and you get to see how much it is. You know, the government gets people to lay, loan it money in the form of bonds, and that as a result of it, they promise to pay back more money at some point down the road. This is how we have financed ourselves, going back to the days of Alexander Hamilton. And there's a certain argument that you can, you know, as long as your economy is doing well enough, and as long as you're financially stable enough, you can manage uh, a debt at a certain level. The problem is that we've now just, you know, people have just taken that as the, uh, the equivalent of teenagers with credit cards. <laughs> No, but anyway, when the money is like, oh, I use this plastic thing and then I don't have to pay for it. That's that's where we are here. It is deeply frustrating, but I think it's also a recognition that, uh, like, what, you know, when you look at why are Democrats throwing around ideas of multi-trillion dollar Green New Deals and stuff like that? Well, because the Republican Party in 2016 stopped caring about this. It's kind of fascinating how much has been probably the most preeminent focus on this issue you'd ever seen was during the Tea Party era. Here we are. Nobody cares. The fact that the deficit hit a trillion dollars in a time of relative economic boom uh, should be freaking everybody out. It isn't. The train is coming down the track, uh, Greg, and nobody wants to step off the tracks. I love how the liberal media, which didn't care about this uh, for eight years, and to be fair, most Republicans don't care now because Trump's the president, but all of a sudden they see, oh my gosh, trillion dollar deficits as far as the eye can see. It must be because of those 2017 tax cuts, because before then, everything was just fiscally hunky-dory. You think, oh, well, we're probably going to have a really big big drop in what's coming in. Nope. Most years, most months, the amount of tax revenue coming in go increases. So it's not, not, not a taxing problem. We, we have plenty of money coming in. We just have no control over our ability of how much we have money we got coming out. It also makes me remember that back in the mid-90s, right after the Republican Revolution, the balanced budget amendment uh, passed the House and came one vote short in the U.S. Senate. One vote. It is kind of worth noting that uh, you know, almost every state has a balanced budget amendment. Now, admittedly, they don't have all the responsibilities that the uh, the federal government has. You know, the state government doesn't have to run like, you know, seven or eight aircraft carriers, things like that. But, uh, you know, the fact that it manages to work there, if you had a glide path to get to a balanced budget, you probably could make it work over a, you know extended period of time. You know, if you can, if you can cut the deficit from the annual deficit from a trillion to a half a trillion over a couple of years span in the Obama years, you could presumably do the same thing again and eventually get it smaller and smaller year by year. But uh Hey, that would require saying no to people. And we don't do that anymore, right? No, we hate that. We don't do that at all. You just did, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go to our first crazy martini now, Jim. And sometimes politicians get the gift that just keeps on giving. And that's an opponent that's so just out there that all you have to do is just sit back and let them implode and let your political base and the people you're hoping will vote for you that might not be in your base just see how darn crazy 
your opponents are. And that's exactly what President Trump should have with the likes of AOC, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar. But he somehow manages to keep stirring up controversy that uh, ends up dividing people. And of course, uh, in a lot of these situations, the media would side with the AOC plus three, as uh, some people call them, in any event. But Trump keeps giving them fodder. There was, of course, the tweet uh, a few weeks back where he said they should all go back to the countries they came from and clean up the messes there. We talked about how only Omar was born in a foreign country. Uh, And now it's the issue of Israel, Rashida Tlaib, that whole uh, being allowed into the country controversy. And, of course, the fact that Tlaib and Omar uh, and the others are behind this BDS uh, campaign against Israel, boycott, divest, and sanctions, basically trying to economically starve Israel. And so President Trump was asked about this at the White House yesterday. These are two cuts from the very same statement. Here's what he said first and where he probably should have stopped. Five years ago, the concept of even talking about this, even three years ago, of cutting off aid to Israel because of two people that hate Israel and hate Jewish people, I can't believe we're even having this conversation. Where has the Democratic Party gone? Where have they gone where they're defending these two people over the state of Israel? But did he stop there? No. And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. So, Jim, Trump supporters are saying, look, if you're you're Jewish, it's obvious that the Democrats are hostile towards Israel. Why would you ever want to support them? On the other hand, of course, you've got folks who are critical of Trump, particularly in this moment, saying, well, what's he what's he talking about, that uh, you're supposed to have loyalty to Israel as an American citizen or you're not a real American if you're not loyal to Israel? Uh, He could have stopped and he didn't. And now he's got trouble. Greg, have you ever watched those old footage of planes landing on the aircraft carrier? And, you know, thankfully, the overwhelming majority of the time, they land just fine. There are a couple ones where you can see the footage where they're looking okay, looking okay, looking okay. Oh, he's getting a little low. Oh, no. Oh, that's a terrible crash. Oh, yeah. That's what it feels like to listen to Trump making that statement. Because I know you and I, and I think a great number of people would say, first of all, if you haven't read David French's piece on uh, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar's, uh, the organization that wanted to bring them to the Middle East, do so. They are vehemently, explicitly, openly anti-Semitic. You know, none of this little, oh, we've got some criticism of Israel's policies here and there. Or something. No, no, this is over. Jews control the media. Uh, oh, you know, Jews are behind everything, yada, 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 you know, bad stuff. And I think if you presented that to most people, first of all, most Democrats never hear about this because they don't read David French. Most people, if they do hear about it, will pretend they didn't hear it. They know that really focusing in on this would require them to say, hey, you know, Ilhan Omar and, and Rashid Khalid, I guess they are kind of anti-Semitic, or at the very least, they certainly have no problem working with people who are overt, outspoken anti-Semites. But the moment people start doing that, the defenders of Omar and, and you know, would, would start, you know, ripping on you for being part of the evil conspiracy against her or something like that. And it would get a big, messy, ugly Democratic fight. We've seen this flaring up intermittently since they came to Congress. I know it was technically only eight months ago, Greg. <laughs> it looks like it's been eight years since uh, since they arrived on the scene. You've got this very strong argument. And then Trump makes this weird, he goes, he doesn't end his sentences. He just kind of you know, ends, ends these phrases, you know, they're very disloyal. Well, disloyal to whom? You know, if he's saying American Jews are being disloyal to Israel, 
Well, first of all, they really hate the dual loyalty argument to begin with. Now Trump is doing some sort of like inverted triple Lux loop figure skating routine. We're arguing that not only are American Jews have loyalties to, to Israel, they should have them. Some of them are betraying Israel by having these positions. The second one is the idea that there should be loyalty to him. Look, we don't take loyalty oaths to presidents or to particular figures in this country. We pledge allegiance to the flag and to the country for which it stands. Lawmakers take an oath to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution, not a particular figure. Uh, and for those who say, oh, Jim, you know, he didn't mean any of that. Look, if you're saying that voting for a Democrat means endorsing anti-Semitism, <laughs> you're basically saying that being a good Jew requires you to vote for Donald Trump, or I guess maybe a third-party candidate. Um, and, you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of, you know, look, the majority, sometimes an overwhelming majority, sometimes a not so overwhelming majority of American Jews vote for the Democrats. And this sort of rhetoric is just going to, you know, drive them bonkers with, with anger over this. And I think justifiably, because people don't like the idea. People never like the idea when somebody who's outside their group tells them how to be a good member of that group. Americans don't like it when foreigners call American foreign policy on America. Catholics don't like it when people outside the Catholic faith say, here's what you Catholics should be doing. And for obvious reasons, you know, we don't like it when uh, somebody who isn't conservative or isn't a Republican starts saying, here's what Republicans should be doing. So, of course, people are going to react. You know, we're going to react very badly to a somebody who is not Jewish, Donald Trump, telling Jews how to be good Jews. So then the third thing, and probably the most defendable one, is to say, look, if you're a Jew and you're voting for the Democratic Party that doesn't want to confront Ilhan Omar or Rashida Tlaib about their anti-Semitism, that effectively you're, you're betraying Judaism. You're betraying your own community. You're betraying, in a way, yourself. That's where your disloyalty is. But I don't think that's going to persuade people. I think it's going to, that's going to you know, really infuriate people. One, because, that again, Trump's the wrong guy to say it. And then secondly, they're basically saying, I know what's best for you. I know who you, sh who you should be voting for and who you shouldn't. Now, there's a, this is the type of argument the president should, otherwise, when he doesn't go off on these weird verbal tangents, be very willing to have, because I think it's safe to say, once you put enough spotlight on Omar, Cleve, their actual viewpoints, their actual allies, the sorts of things that get said, no, it's not just opposition to Netanyahu. No, it's not just opposition to Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories, et cetera, et cetera. This is a viewpoint that basically argues Israel does not have a right to exist. And that is an extreme position in American politics. And it's one the president should win. But uh, first, you got to stop, you know, having these verbal brain farts. Uh, every single time you talk about the topic. Yeah, he's not helping himself. He's not helping himself. You mentioned a third-party candidate. Uh, we know from 2000 that, that certain enclaves of Jewish voters love Pat Buchanan. So, <laughs> I was talking about this with uh, Hugh Hewitt this morning. And, and there's an absolute, there are certain Republicans who look at this and say, well, I'm very pro-Israel. Why aren't Jews voting for me? And it's very similar to the dynamic on school choice of African-Americans. You look at polling, African-Americans overwhelmingly support school choice. So a Republican candidate comes and says, ah, well, okay, here's an issue I agree on. I'm going to run ads on this. I'm going to emphasize my position on this. And they don't win a big, any significantly larger chunk of the African-American vote. And they think, well, what is that? Well, the answer is there are other issues. Very few members of particular demographics are single-issue voters. You'll win those folks. And, you know, maybe in the case of Ron DeSantis, it may have been enough to, to be the margin of victory down in Florida or something like that. There'll be circumstances where it'll help you. But you can't expect people to flip it because they care about all kinds of other issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's financial, you know, economic issues, all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, you know, there are Jews who are very pro-Israel. But if they think you're wrong on all the other issues, they're not going to vote for you. And you really shouldn't expect them to uh, flip just because you found one issue uh, in which you're expressing their preferred position. Jim, let's move to our final crazy martini now and back to the 2020 presidential campaign trail. 
Uh, we just saw a new poll from CNN. I think it was yesterday that uh, showed Joe Biden once again with a healthy lead nationwide. But of course, it's state by state that matters. Uh, his wife, Jill Biden, is uh, on the campaign trail. I believe if you're in the mainstream media, you're contractually obligated to call her Dr. Jill Biden. <laughs> but nonetheless, you uh, have uh, Jill Biden making headlines yesterday. I think she was up in New Hampshire where she was making a pitch for her husband to be president. Not because he has the best ideas, not because he would be a fantastic president, not because he's got this supposed wealth of experience from all his years in Washington. Nope. It's because he's ahead in the polls and we just have to win. Uh, the audio is a little rough here, but uh, here's what Jill Biden had to say. Your candidate might be better on, I don't know, health care than Joe is. But you've got to look at who's going to win this election. And maybe you have to swallow a little bit and say, OK, I sort of personally like so-and-so better. But your bottom line has to be that we have to beat Trump. She goes on to say the polls have been consistent. He's doing great in the battleground states that have to be won, like Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania. And so, Jim, gosh, it's all the way back to 2016, where I remember a candidate who was obsessed with the polls. He actually ended up doing fairly well. Um, but what do you make of uh, Dr. Jill Biden essentially saying, eh, I'm not sure he's a great candidate, but hey, he's ahead. So vote for him. Greg, before we go any further, I want to go down a list. I know Stephen Strange was a surgeon, which is how he became Dr. Strange. Uh, to the best of my knowledge of Marvel Comics, I don't know if Victor Von Doom went to medical school. So I mean, did he get a PhD? Is that what made him Dr. Doom? Julius Irving, did he get a medical school? No. Does he have a PhD? No. And yet he's Dr. J. Pepper, the soda, <laughs> PhD, medical degree. I'm not seeing any of it. A lot of doctors going around. Where I'm not so sure he really should be called doctor, but fine. For some strange reason, the media has adamantly insisted that this is Dr. Jill Biden in her assessment. And look, you know, this is going to be a long campaign. They're going to have moments where the words don't come out quite right. Boy, that's not... If Mrs. Garrity came out and had to endorse me, and that was the endorsement she came up with, there'd be some grumbling. <laughs> afterwards that that's a pretty tepid one because the whole thing about electability is basically you're you're popular until you're not you know it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy people support him because they think he's uh most likely to win but the moment they think he's not so most likely to win they're going to not support him anymore so the polls won't be strong anymore so it, you know, it's this vicious cycle it's, it's almost like being famous for being famous right would you rather be in joe biden's position than anybody else's you know this is the look it's nice to be the front runner it's also August 21st. We've seen changes uh, in, in presidential campaigns over the years. Howard Dean was probably really hot right about this time a couple cycles ago. Uh, Hillary Clinton was well ahead of Barack Obama in the 2008 cycle. We cycled through a couple of front runners in the 2008 one for the Republican nomination. 2012, I think Romney was pretty consistently throughout. All that. But I think, you know, uh, Herman Cain had a month where he was up there. Jeb started out the leader in, in it. So again, the fact that you're leading the polls now doesn't mean you're going to lead in the polls then. And the most recent, this ad that uh, Biden put up uh, yesterday, that basically is a, a, basically it's a general election ad. It's basically, here's why we're better against Trump. And at the very beginning, there's this little flash that shows he's the strongest candidate up against Trump. Well, now you're basically saying that this is not anything inherent to Joe Biden as a man, as a candidate. Uh, as a figure who, who's been a senator for a lot of years, who's been vice president. It's no no Gallup polls right now. The, the polls right now say he's the best candidate. Ergo, he is the best candidate. Well, if those polls change, then it would follow that he is not the best candidate. Uh, now, here's the thing. Do I think Joe Biden is probably the most electable in this field? Yeah. yeah. I actually think he's 
pretty smart to not get sucked into this vortex of deep leftism that is consuming so much of the rest of the field. It, it just is so tepid and saying, well, look, the polls say he's strongest against Trump right now. So let's do that. If you know, That's basically saying, as long as the polls say he's the best candidate, he's the best candidate, and you're putting your argument out of your hands uh, and entirely into what the polling samples say uh, for the next couple of months. It's, it's a very high stakes gamble they're taking. We'll see how things shake out. But uh, hey, you know what? Greg, who am I to argue with the doctor? <laughs> and uh, hats off to uh, Hot Air. Uh, they had included the uh, Onion uh, tweet from this yesterday, and I assume a story that went along with it. Uh, the Onion version, which for those of you over at Snopes is not real, it's satire, uh, says Jill Biden urges Democratic voters to ignore which candidates are mentally sharp enough to finish complete sentences for the good of the party. <laughs> There's a subtext to these arguments that, that I'm going to have to make text right here. Hey, you know this guy. That's it. That's it. <laughs> you, know, you, you recognize the name. The scandals, you know he's got a runaway mouth. You're, you're used to it. You're, you're used to the gaffes. You're used to what he says not really making any sense. But you know, you know you're not going to get any rude surprises. Yeah, once in a while you get a bad New York Times article about his family connections and how they seem to be foreign investors and, and things like that. But look, you, you know him. You like him. This is almost the primary version of why change horses in the middle of the street. He seems to be polling right, well right now. Why change anything? That might be enough between now and the, the day when the, when the nomination is confirmed. But uh, there'll be about, I was about to say, 25, 26. What are we down to? Only 23 or 24? Who will be trying to persuade otherwise? <laughs> He's the safe, experienced candidate. That's that's what the base is looking for this year. So we'll see. We'll find Don't out. Don't rock the boat. <laughs> that's exactly right. Jim, good to be with you as always. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.